Well, we are blessed today to have Doug Carpenter with us. Doug, uh, served for how many years in the diocese? I started down in Bruton, Alabama in 1960 right. and retired in 2005. Retired, and you well, went from Bruton and Andalusia to St. Paul's and Lynchburg? Andalusia to Huntsville. Huntsville. Huntsville to Lynchburg, Virginia, uh-huh. and then back down here in 73. Back down here. You planted two churches, St. Stephen's, Huntsville, and... St. Stephen's. Did you have a trademark? On the, did you get money from the St. Stephen's? <laughs> well, it's very interesting how that went. I was at St. Stephen's Bruton, and George Murray uh, said, we've got so many people moving into uh, Huntsville, we've got to have a new congregation up there. He announced this at a convention. Anybody interested? So I talked to him about it, and on the way up there, we stopped at Camp McDowell. There was a clergy conference. And George Murray said, I think if a congregation has a name, even before it starts, it'll have a faster start. And he said, we'll never have a big St. Stephen's because all of our St. Stephen's are in small towns. So let's call it St. Stephen's. So that's how that St. Stephen's started. Then 10 years later, when I started St. Stephen's Birmingham, which the Advent had a big part in, which I want to tell you a little bit about that. Uh, My son, Stephen... (laughs) (laughs) would you all rather me stand up or are you okay like this said at the meeting there were about 20 of us who had agreed to start a new congregation here didn't didn't Stephen work in Huntsville and I said yeah and then I said well why don't we use that same name in Birmingham so that's how the St. Stephen started here Good. Well, we're glad to have Doug with us today. Our, our purpose, of course, as always, is to, one, glorify the Lord Jesus. Uh, two, to give us some connectivity to the past. It, it struck me this morning, uh, the two college interns that we have were born around 1994, which was when Paul Zoll was the dean. Uh, so that gives you some sense. So for them, uh, people like even Larry Gibson are, are ancient history. They, they, they predate our interns this summer. And so I want to give us a connectivity that here we have in, in before us, Doug, who is a, a connection uh, to um, our past and to understand that we're connected and we stand on the shoulders who have gone, on those who have gone on before us, uh, and also to hear about uh, the witness of his father. He's written a new book, uh, which you can get uh, there in the back. There's Barbara, our lovely book sale person, and, um, and signed copies are, are less expensive uh, so you can get one of those. Um, uh, to hear the, about the wit- witness of Bishop Carpenter, and, and also, as Doug has already hit on, um, the role of the Advent in the life of the diocese, and, and also Doug's ministry. Uh, I'm, I'm always interested to hear about church planning, and you've, worldly speaking, if, if I can use the word successful, you've had two successful church plants uh, in a day and age where uh, the Episcopal Church, we don't do church plants that well anymore. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about that. But let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get started. Yeah. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to this place and for the life and the witness of those saints throughout the ages uh, who have uh, sacrificed so much on our behalf and has stand, have stood fast uh, through the test of time. And so, Lord, you have given us a mantle of responsibility in the day and age in which we live. And so, Lord, steal us uh, for that task which you have called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll start with your dad, if that's all right. Tell us about your dad uh, growing up, where he's from, how he got his call to ministry, his, his faith story, things like that. There's much to tell. Uh, let me start by saying why I chose this uh, title, A Powerful Blessing. 
I could have chosen a different title, and I think if I had, I could have sold more books because everybody wanted a book about civil civil rights in, uh, in 1963. But so many of you had asked me to write a full biography of my father. I didn't want to get stuck in just a couple of years. So I started at his birth and came on, even a little before his birth. And the title I chose because so many, I don't know how many of you were confirmed by him, but when I was at the... Um, you know, can we see a show of hands of who was confirmed by... He's got a lot of answering right. uh, for <laughs> in the Ever After. I see some right. hands the, I'd like to... His last confirmation classes were 1968. So the youngest people that he confirmed are now about 58 or 59 years old. Um, but when I was at Redstone Club speaking a short time ago, I asked there, that's an older group, over half of them had been confirmed by my father. And people always talk about the power of his hands and his voice uh, and the confirmation words. And so I decided I'm not going to write this as a civil rights book or a media book, but I'm going to write it primarily for the people that he confirmed and who knew him and who loved the sound of his voice. The uh, Birmingham News spoke of his voice as sounding like gently rolling thunder. <laughs> and those of you that knew him will remember that. When he retired as Chancellor of Sewanee, they talked so much about the, the sound of his voice and his blessing. Uh, his blessing on people was so important that that's why I choose it and chose to write for those people who knew him rather than for the general public, although I hope the general public will enjoy it as well. And that blessing, of course, in Birmingham started when he came here to the Advent in 1936. He had a very comfortable office at the other end of Clingman Commons, where the library is now. That was the rector's office. Less than two years later, uh, Bishop McDowell died, and people knew he was working himself to death, so they'd set a convention to elect a, an assistant for him. But before the convention came, he died, and they went on with the convention, and my father was elected bishop at age 38. Um, and what happened at the advent, he got kicked upstairs to what he called Mount Ararat, <laughs> you know those steep steps at the end of Clingman's Common? There were two rooms up there. Of course, no air conditioning anywhere. In there there just is no air conditioning in there. Is there now? There is now. Good. Well, so his windows were open. Sloss Furnace was pouring smoke out all the time there. <laughs> his shirt would be totally dirty by noon if he was up in his office. He spent most of his time in the parishes, and no wonder, uh, rather than up there in, in Mount Ararat. But people love to visit him up there, and so many of them speak of his blessing as well. So that's where the title came from. Yeah. Um, you asked about he, he grew up. He grew up in Augusta. His father yeah. was a priest. Well, I'm yes. A, yeah. uh -huh. uh, my father uh, was born in Augusta, Georgia, 1899. And one of the very interesting things to me as I was writing his biography is on his mother's side, he was only one generation from Georgia plantation living, including slaves. On his father's side, who was the Episcopal priest, he was only one generation from industrial Detroit. Poor Detroit, you know where it is now. Uh, but so he had that influence 
coming from, from two different generations. His father had gone down to Sanford, Florida as something of an Episcopal missionary. And, they uh, still need it. What? They still, still need, need missionaries yeah. in Sanford. Right. <laughs> Sanford, close to the Disney World. So he was born in Augusta, grew up in Augusta, Georgia. And uh, recently I talked to Vernon Jones, who is our second oldest clergyman in this uh, diocese now. And Vernon was the black minister in Tuskegee for many years. I said, Vernon, uh, what did you think of my father? He said, well, we occasionally disagreed, but I gave him a lot of slack because I knew where he was from. <laughs> that very week, the newspaper said that the golf course in Augusta had finally decided women could be included. <laughs> so, so that's where he was from. So he uh, grew up there. His father died when he was 12. And uh, I think partly for that reason, his mother and older sister sent him off to Lawrenceville School in New Jersey for the male influence, I expect. Um, he went there as a scrawny, tall, thin guy. They wouldn't let him do sports because he was so thin. But before he left, he had won the heavyweight boxing championship in two years. So went on to Princeton. And, of course, the thing that people really enjoy hearing about at Princeton, he became the intercollegiate heavyweight wrestling champion and the captain of the Princeton's team, which led to his fighting Strangler Lewis in New York. None of you remember Strangler Lewis, but he was the world's heavyweight champion wrestler. He outweighed my father about 50 pounds of muscle. And the deal was that if this young college fella could stand up 20 minutes against Strangler Lewis, he would win by decision, which he did. So big headlines in all the New York papers and everywhere about this young college kid that would beat the Strangler. They remained lifelong friends until Strangler died. Um, and that did, was did you call him Uncle Strangler? Uncle Strangler. <laughs> 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 that friendship with Strangler was so characteristic of my father. Friendship was just a trademark of his. I was at, uh, Andrew, I was at a clergy meeting recently where the clergy were debating whether they could have friends in their congregation. I thought that was strange that they would wonder if that was okay. Would they lose their authority? He had friends everywhere. People were very much his friends. And um, not only Episcopalian, but all. And speaking of the blessing... I had a friend named Dick Coffey. Did some of y'all know Dick Coffey? You knew him. He died last year at probably age 90 or so. Dick was a salesman. And he told me years ago, he said, you know, I'd be walking down 20th Street and sales weren't going well and I was so sad. And here would come the big bishop lumbering down 20th Street. He kind of lumbered along. He, his legs were never very strong, believe it or not lumbering along, and Dick said he would grab me behind the neck and shake me up and say, well, bless your old gizzards, you old fella. <laughs> and he said if I really looked bad, he'd give me the works, which was, bless your heart, soul, and gizzard. <laughs> and I don't know where the gizzard part came from, but a lot of us grew up thinking humans had gizzards. <laughs> I was in college before I realized that we don't have gizzards. <laughs> He mixed a lot of wonderful humor in with his Let's, Yeah, let me ask you about that. Uh -huh. One of the things that you mention in your book is that your dad 
uh, only wore a collar on special occasions uh-huh. on Sunday worship, and they normally wear a, a black tie. Yeah. And um, and yet he was he was so widely known walking down 20th Street, uh-huh. and people would. Your dad had very much a ministry of presence, like Jesus saying to Zacchaeus, "Today I'm going to your house." He went out of his way rather than having people respond to him. He went after them. He did. He, he was well known, in, in particularly in Birmingham for that, but all over the state, uh, so that he was often chosen like the uh, first really strong integrated group that Birmingham had was through the uh, community chess. Uh, this was uh, in 1951, and he was elected the chairman uh, of that commi- that integrated committee. Now, part of the history of Birmingham is in that, because that was a great committee. It was a committee that decided on how the community chest worked. 1954, when the school integration bill was passed, Ku Klux Klan began to come on the rise again. He had lots of hate stuff from the Ku Klux Klan. And they intimidated particularly the black members to the extent that by 1956 that group had had to disband because of the house bombings and so forth. So that from 56 until 63 we had no large integrated the only integrated meetings were at the Advent or at Carpenter House during that time. Um, and, of course, Dad was here until 1954. In 1955, the Dyson headquarters was built. People said, Bishop, you ought to build over the mountain. That's where everybody is now. And I looked up your vestry, and except for two, the uh, zip codes end in 13 or 23. So they're right. Um, but he thought that it would be very important to have the Dyson headquarters in the center of Birmingham. He was aware by then, he was aware when he came here, that in many ways this was a troubled city. And Carpenter House came to be known as a safe place for integrated meetings. So that when Andy Young and Martin Luther King and, and um, the other who were planning the campaign on Birmingham in 63. They were meeting over in Georgia in an area where my great-grandfather had worked. Midway. Midway, Georgia. Um, And that great-great-grandfather, who would be my father's great-grandfather, was known as the the Apostle to the Negroes. And he was a slave owner. But he couldn't figure out how to get rid of the slaves because in Georgia, if you freed a slave, they had to leave the state. So you had to have some money to be able to free slaves. So instead of figuring out how to free slaves, he uh, decided that he would devote his entire Presbyterian ministry to the slaves of Liberty County, Georgia, and that's what he did. So they were over there making their plans on Birmingham, not connecting the fact that Charles Carcock Jones had worked there, and now Charles Carcock Jones Carpenter was Birmingham. Nobody made that connection. But Martin Luther King said, we're going into Birmingham. We've got to know people there. Who do you all know in Birmingham? And Andy Young, who was later the mayor of Atlanta, said, I know Peggy Horn. Anywhere she is, we'll be safe. Well, Peggy, who after she finished Phillips, worked for the Advent staff and then worked for the diocese as our youth director, was in Carpenter House. And Andy said, anywhere she is, we can have integrated meetings. And that's why Carpenter House 
came to be the place for a lot of the integrated meetings in the early 60s. And that's kind of overlooked in the history of, of this place. <clears throat> because once Martin Luther King named my dad and Bishop Murray and six other clergy as the slow moderates uh, who were really holding up the game, once he named them, people looked at them as kind of caricatures of inept southern, you know, prejudice prejudiced people. And I think that label was on them so strongly that almost none of them ever tried to refute it because people always took them wrong. So this is the first biography of any of those eight. But since I've written this, now Steve Grafman is writing the biography of Rabbi Milton Grafman, who was really hurt. He and all the others thought King's letter was magnificent. But it hurt them. It hurt the Jewish rabbi more than any. When I came back here in the 70s, I went to see him. He was the only one left now of the eight. And he said he was still getting hate mail from people that assumed that since King, and of course that whole story I try to explain in this book, singled him out that he must be bad. So when Steve Grafman's book comes out, it's going to be really worth reading but I've gotten off on things we were coming with this. No, no, no. I, I, that's, a, that's a good segue. Um, your dad clearly had, even though he was not from here, he had a big heart for, for Birmingham mm -hmm. and, and for the Diocese of Alabama. Uh, at the time when your dad was bishop, the Diocese of Alabama was, was the entire state mm -hmm. of Alabama. And mm -hmm. what was the little song he used to sing? Oh, he loved this, this state. He came to love it so much. And as he drive, would drive around this whole state or take the train, as they did sometimes then, he would sing a song to the tune of the Marines hymn, you know, from the halls of Montezuma, from the hills of Montezuma to the shores of Barsecour. And uh, Barsecour was the most southern part of the state then. So he came to love this state so much. Um, and his move here from Savannah interested me very much. I never quite understood. <laughs> After seminary, he went to Waycross, Georgia, where he met my mother. And then he went to the largest church in the Diocese of Georgia at 29. You're an old fellow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it was, it was so interesting to read about his time in Savannah, Georgia, because all his famous ancestors were from there, all the Joneses. Streets are named after them. His uh, great-grandfather was the mayor of, of Savannah at age 29. Everybody wanted him to speak. Things were just going like gangbusters. Why did he, he come to Birmingham? Well, I only asked him once. I wish I'd asked him more. When I was maybe a teenager, I was thinking about, what if I'd grown up in Savannah? Now I'm so glad I grew up here, not Savannah, but... Uh, he said, son, it was just so easy for me in Savannah. So he came to Birmingham in 38. Now, I don't know if any of y'all have read Douglas Blackman's story about slavery by another name. Have any of y'all read that? Yeah. It's, uh, and it, in 1938, people that worked in our coal mines and, and iron ore mines were treated like slaves. Smoke was belching out everywhere. The Ku Klux Klan thought it was their duty to keep minority groups in line, not only 
blacks, but Roman Catholics and Jews. This was a tough town. And I think that's partly what drew him here. Also, the advent had come by 1938 to be considered one of the most important Episcopal churches in the southeast. Did you all know that that was true way back in 38? We try not to talk about it, but we know it's true. We know it now. It's obvious now. So he gave up all that heritage and came here and came to love this city. Came to the Advent at 36, quite a bit older than you are. Um, <laughs> two years, maybe. Two years, yeah. I was three. My brother was five. And my sister, Ruth, where are you, Ruth? Ruth and her twin sister were born. Dad and mother moved here in June of 36. They were born in September. So we kind of range about like your children. Yeah. My mother had a cerebral hemorrhage. When I was, you know, writing this book, I realized what an amazing time that was. Here my father was here with a five-year-old and a three-year-old and twin, twin daughters. And my mother was unconscious for a month. Out of commission for a year. Um... And yet he did a great job here. It's just amazing that part this uh, I brought along this wonderful tribute the Advent gave to my father uh, when he was elected bishop, <coughs> and they kicked him upstairs to the diocese and the headquarters, and then he started traveling. So by the time I was five and my brother seven and my sisters two, he was gone half the time. Um, in those days. Bishops didn't have computers and secretaries, so they were on the road most of the time. You know that the entire diocesan staff in the early days of his ministry was himself and one secretary? That was the whole staff. The whole state was the, was the diocese. So he did grow up in Augusta and went to, off to Lawrenceville School and then Princeton and then worked at Princeton two years. And during that time... He went on a, a, a storied trip in Canada. Um, he was working and coaching and, and working with the religious institutions at Princeton. And they, some of them decided they would go up into Canada and not take any food and live off the land. So <laughs> the, the picture on the back of this shows what this crowd looked like. It's, that's my favorite picture of all. Um, the fellow on the far left was one of the most famous history teachers in the country, Buzzer Hall. And many years later, they asked Buzzer Hall how he thought some people became religious and some didn't. And he wrote an article for the Princeton Alumni Weekly that said, some people get religious before an altar. I found mine in a canoe in Canada. Well, the guys got hungry because there had been forest fires and there were no animals. <laughs> they finally had to kill a moose. He said, son, don't ever think of killing a moose. It's just like going out in the pasture and shooting a cow. But they... Um, they Sage advice. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so he went on after that to Virginia Seminary. And... Um, his life at Virginia Seminary was really interesting. And because I think he had become so famous with his wrestling, 
and because of his family tradition. While he was in seminary, he was getting calls all over the country of churches that he could have gone to. Um, but one of the funny things that's referred to is they were having a big event at Virginia Seminary, and all of a sudden, everybody was looking up at the high water tower. And they looked up there, and my father was hanging by one arm and beating on his chest. And I had heard of that, but I never knew the significance. The Scopes trial was going on in Tennessee about whether we came from apes or not. And so he cleared that up. Well, he cleared he, he failed to clear it up because one of his classmates said, after that, we didn't know if we'd come from apes, apes came from us. <laughs> your dad grew up, your, your, your grandmother was uh, from what, what you t- was an incredibly devout woman, and they, they wrote, they had an amazing correspondence that a lot of the material you had. Yeah. Tell me about your, your grandmother's faith and, and how your dad came to appropriate that as his, as his own, because the big difference between the way he parented you and the way she parented him, oh, yeah. how did he appropriate that as his own? My grandmother was uh, an amazing woman, but I don't know what it would have been like to be her son. Uh, I'm trying to figure that out. Uh, Her husband died when she was, when when my dad was 12, and she had two older daughters. Well, the two older daughters and my grandmother thought it was their job to really make something out of this young kid, my dad. (laughs) So that when he left home, my grandmother wrote a, a, about three letters a week to him while he was in high school and college, telling him all the things he should do. And his sisters did the same thing. And she continued to send him money too after he was married. Is yeah. That right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know I included that, but she had <laughs> on the list. fifty dollars a month. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> My mother found out about it that he, that that his mother was still sending him fifty dollars a month. And she got incensed about that, that her husband was accepting money from his mother. After that, I noticed that a lot of her letters went to his office. (laughs) (laughs) But to to give you an idea of of how protective, he went to Waycross, and when he got there, everybody said, oh, wait till Alex gets here, wait till Alex gets here. Well, when Alex got there, she had been overseas with her aunt, of course, they got married not long after that. But um, when his mother found out he was going to marry Alex, she said, now, she started a letter. Son, I think for the curtains in your bedroom, da-da-da-da. <laughs> and then she drew, <laughs> drew through it and said, maybe Alex should have something to say about this. <laughs> but it didn't seem to hurt him all that attention from his mother. A lot of great men have had powerful mothers like Winston Churchill. And I don't know how you would stand it, but apparently it was just great for well, It's him. a real miracle that, I mean, she wanted him to go into the ordained ministry. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and he didn't seem to put up much, much resistance, of course, because he could have done pretty much anything. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what, what, what's the story behind, is there any indication of what, how he, his mother's faith became his faith, in a sense, he was able to separate the two, and then his call to ordained ministry. I hope all of you will study this book as well as Andrew has. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> he was a, a person who loved people, 
Oh, there's no question about that all the way. I think what he did is, in going back to Princeton for two years after graduation was to decide whether he really was called to the ordained ministry. Um, and one of the uh, things that's in this book is he went down to Lawrenceville School. It's only five miles from Princeton. was helping them with some of their coaching. And a friend of him, of his, named Les Glenn, who was later a seminary classmate, said, Bishop, are you considering going to seminary? And by that time he was. And Les said, why? And my father just responded, and this is one of Les's letters, because I think the Lord wants me to. But what all that process was, we just have to speculate right. on. But I think her influence, she was always saying, Bishop so-and-so is going to be in New York. You need to go hear him. Or uh, there's a missionary bishop. And she read the Living Church constantly and was sending him articles out of the Living Church. Now, don't you think that might turn some people off? But it helped him. Yeah, he had the, he, the things that stuck, his love for people, but also his ability to take the good with the bad. Uh-huh. And so one of the great quotes from your book is uh, you wrote, uh, Dad had started off that year of 1948 by a powerful diocesan convention address that reminded Alabama Episcopalians that the presiding bishop had called upon us to, quote, put first emphasis on evangelism and to make this basic work of the church our primary objective. He said that, and this is your dad, for many years I have had in my Bible a quotation in the beloved handwriting of my mother, which reads, knowing him is our motive for making him known, to walk through life with the knowledge that makes it radiant, to see that others have not, have not that knowledge, makes an imperative motive to make him known. Let me read that quote from your grandmother again. Yeah. Uh, it's, it reads, uh, knowing him is our motive for making him known to walk through life with the knowledge that makes it radiant and to see that others have not that knowledge makes an imperative motive to make him known. And, and he, his, he lived by that. He lived by that, and, and Jesus comes up so frequently in his sermons. Um, and one of his favorite quotations from Jesus was, Go thy way. That phrase is a lot of times in the King James Bible, which was all they would have had at those times. Go thy way. And I can remember sermons where he would say, go thy way. And then he would tell the different ways that people went to follow Jesus. And I think he he did find a lot of that from his mother Mm -hmm. and her influence on him. And he emphasized that when he was at the Advent, he used to speak about our comrade Christ. But when the Russians started using the word comrades... (laughs) He switched and didn't use Comrade Christ anymore, but still would emphasize Jesus. And the year he was uh, still here but had been elected bishop, he spoke at the University of Alabama graduation. Already he realized that we were going to be in a war with Germany before long. And he talks about that, and he says that what we can do is strengthen the church and his antidote to all that was going on in the world was strengthen the church. Roosevelt has asked for so many airplanes. I asked for so many Episcopalians. <laughs> that was in one of his talks. And so church growth and evangelism was important to him, and he thought church camps were a really important asset for this sort of thing. He, um, I, I really, one of the great things I think about the book is 
the way he parented and the witness of your, your mom and dad. God bless her yeah. uh, for being so, uh, so faithful while he was on the road so much. But he had a great little phrase about his method of parenting, and that was uh, that his job as a dad was to be an anchor to windward. Yep. That, he used to say that frequently. That, that the job of a dad is to be an anchor to windward, and otherwise you don't tell your children everything, but if they get out of line, you, you're there to pull them in. And I wondered some if that was a response to his mother, <coughs> not being an anchor to windward, but being so forceful in guiding him. So I don't know. Um, <coughs> but he was always there for us, <coughs> but he always trusted us. Uh, Ruth, remember, used to call us his uninhibited little children of nature. <laughs> and, but it was just an amazing thing having him as a father, and I guess all of us just thought all dads were like he was. You know? right. um, it, it was later in life when we realized that we'd have an exceptional father and mother. Uh, as we grew up. Yeah, it's, he had a firm grasp on a, a personal relationship with Jesus. And, you know, when Jesus says, I've come that they might have life to the full, your dad lived life to the full, and he exuded it, was able to, to gossip about Jesus, mm -hmm. gossip the gospel in a way that was winsome and even in dealing with children. One of the wonderful little stories you said that he used to tell you is the woman who had two sets of twins, uh, Plex and Complex, and then uh, the second set she named Mo and No Mo. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and just his, his per and he was he was a large in life guy, but at the center uh, was the Lord. During his tenure, I'm reading from your statistics, the diocese grew from 16,217 baptized members in 1938 to 32,806 in 1968, right before he retired, a growth of 102% while the total state population grew by only 17%. Yeah. That, that, that's growth that, that we haven't seen in, ever since yeah. then, yeah. <laughs> since yeah. 1968. Yeah, and his good humor, like the more and no more, and all that was mixed in with his deep devotion to, to Jesus and his willingness to talk about him. Uh, one of the things that he did, too, was love the English language, and he quoted so much. Uh, I remember early on, like, Back in the 50s, he started quoting frequently, the old order changeth, yielding place to new. And God fulfills himself in many ways, lest one good custom should corrupt the world. And I used to know, that's in the idols of the king. What was the one good custom? And I didn't know until much later, the one good custom that would corrupt the world was what we believed in the South was the good custom of segregation. The old order changes, yielding place to new. And God fulfills himself in many ways, lest one good custom should corrupt the world. So, although he gets criticized for being too slow, and, and I, I understand that people can criticize him for being too slow as he tries to hold the diocese together, um, that was in his heart and mind that we had to move through that. And one of my favorite stories about bishops and clergy in those days is and I don't know if this is true but it's a good story man's on a train and the train's going slow and the man says Porter can't you go any faster than this Porter says 
Sure, I can go faster, but I have to stay with the train. <laughs> and I think it's important to remember that when you think about 1963 and 1965, that, you know, it was even easier for parish clergy because they could go to another parish. But the bishops, they had to stay put. And they were hauling along a lot of weight in those days. The, the very first diocesan convention I went to was in Montgomery in 1961. And some very influential Episcopalians got up and shook their fist at my father and called him a communist because he was supporting the National Council of Churches of Christ. And uh, that brought him more grief from the diocese probably than anything else he did was to support that. Yeah, the thing that, that you see is uh, your, your dad, and uh, you too, I mean, you and your, your, your siblings uh, poured your life into the ministry. I and mean, that's the thing is that it's not just one person being ordained. Everybody is on the boat whether they like it or not. Yeah. And, uh, but, but the toll that, that those years in the 60s took on your dad, you can see in the pictures. And, of course, uh, Bishop Murray died at 55. Uh, it, it was a, it was a McDowell, hard, yeah, yeah. yeah. McDowell died at 55. Right. Uh, uh, how old was George Murray when he? George lived a long life. Uh, Ann and I, my wife Ann is here somewhere. There she is. She and I were at George's funeral. It couldn't have been more than three or four years ago. So he was well into it. But you age. mentioned that it was his wife, his widow said it was a, it, it nearly did a man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, I think it's one reason he retired fairly early, George Murray did. Uh -huh. Uh, in McDowell, people could see he was killing himself right. so hard and, and do this. Um, my father, fortunately, had a strong constitution, but as you say in pictures, once he get, hits 60 years old, he's got to be an old man. Um, I have a picture in here of the last confirmation class that we were together in Huntsville. He was, he's only 60, he's just turned 69. I'm 81. He had just turned 69. I had to walk beside him in confirmation to hold him up so he could confirm. And people always laugh at this. I think it's okay even to laugh at his, at his infirmities because he was so strong. But early on in that service in Huntsville in 68, and I presented 35 for confirmation, I looked over and he had gone sound asleep in the bishop's chair. <laughs> So I went over and woke him up, and he thought, oh, it must be the end of the service. He hopped up and blessed everybody. For the <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, Dad, it's time for you to preach. <laughs> and he preached. There was a great sermon about the little boy that gave his lunch for the feeding of the 5,000. And, uh, and I think part of the reason that he aged so much is nobody really thought he would ever succumb to anything. He was so strong that there wasn't a lot of medical attention. Um, he had diabetes. Had diabetes. Trouble uh, with his back and legs yeah. and feet. Yeah. Tommy Wilson's family uh, operated on a kidney, on a uh, appendix that was about to break. Um, he had a very serious operation in, in uh in uh, 1965, my brother gave me all the technical names for that. I can't really remember it, but it had a lot to do with the urinary tract and so forth. Um, but he's just plugged along. Yeah. But, I mean, he was only 69 and an ancient person. 
A lot of us live to be 90 years old now. Like this, we've run out of time, overtime. A uh, couple, couple questions, anything for, for Doug uh, before we, we take off? Can you make a few comments about Camp McDowell and the beginnings of Camp McDowell yes. and his involvement uh -huh. in Camp McDowell? Uh, when he first went to Waycross, Georgia, there was no permanent campsite for a camp in Georgia, and he was very instrumental in getting them to have a campsite. He was a strong believer in camps. When he was at the Advent, the, first, the second summer he was here, he directed Camp McDowell at Battles Wharf in Mobile. That's where Camp McDowell started in 1922, uh, down on Battles Wharf, Mobile. So the Depression is getting over, and then we get the Second World War and so forth. In the um, early 40s, he brings Scott Epps to Birmingham to look for a permanent site for a camp. After the war, very quickly after the war, Scott finds a place up in Winston County, and we buy that land in Winston County. It's just an incredible place, and you all are very supportive of that right now. The thing I remember most about your father is his enormous size of his hand, and he put it on top of your skull and sort of crush it as he was back there. <laughs> <laughs> Say something about the pennies for Camp McDowell. All right, I will. But first, Tommy Wilson's uh, brother painted that magnificent portrait of my father that's out in the in the Clingman's Commons. And when he was about through with it, he called me over to his house and said, I want you to have some part in this portrait. And I said, goodness, what's that? He said, see something that you think's not quite right and fix it. Well, he was painting with his fingers at that time. And so I put my finger in some paint, and I didn't see anything wrong with it, so I just kind of touched his forehead a little bit. But I have a, a fingerprint in that <laughs> painting out there. And Ruth asked about the pennies for Camp McDowell. So everybody would be involved in the early days of Camp McDowell. Dad sent peanut bags, little paper peanut bags, to every congregation two weeks before he went there. Everybody was to collect all their pennies. He would get 60 pounds of pennies in congregation. They made a fortune. It made a fortune. It worked, yeah, and it involved everybody. Sometimes now we have campaigns and we go for the millionaires first and so forth. This went from the children on up from the very beginning. It was a good program. I know you've got to get yeah, a church. Let me pray, and uh, Doug will be around. Uh, if you'd like to chat with him, please do. Let's, uh, let's say a word of prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the witness of the Carpenter family, uh, all of them, uh, and Lord, for you moving mightily in their lives and uh, calling them to ministry, whether lay or ordained. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would uh, have our hearts so kindled with the fire of your Holy Spirit uh, that we might reach out to those uh, who do not know you, and Lord, that indeed uh, we would ever put before us the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.